Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we bring you news from the battlefront as Russia attacks in the east, analyse the results from the Polish elections, and I interview Damien Spieters from Conflict Armament Research, who investigates in maps the supply of critical foreign components used in Russia's UAV and cruise missile programmes. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. If we give President Zelensky the tools, the Ukrainians will finish the job. Slava Ukraini! Nobody's gonna break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Monday, the 16th of October, one year and 234 days since the full-scale invasion began. And today, I'm joined by Brussels correspondent Joe Barnes, Europe editor James Crisp, and editor of the Central Asia and South Caucasus Bulletin, James Kilner. I started by asking Joe for the latest news from Ukraine. Hi folks, we've got a just in, and back to what I was speaking about last week on Avdivka. So the probably weeks, week-long efforts by Russian forces to storm the strategically important town in eastern Ukraine appears to be running out of steam, and that is according to Kyiv itself. So Ukrainian forces are believed to have repelled 15 attacks on the settlement um, from four separate directions. And as, as I stressed last week or said last week, we know the Ukrainian, uh, sorry, the Russian forces were trying to attempt an operational encirclement from the southwest direction. So what's interesting is those 15 attacks that have been repelled from four different directions on Abdifka is down from the uh, 60 a day uh, in the middle of last week, according to Vitaly Barabash, the head of Abdifka's military administration. This sort of easing off of attacks indicates that the Russian effort to capture Avdivka has deflated, according to Mr. Barabash. Analysts are in broad consensus with that. So this is something from the Institute of the Study of War, uh, the US-based think tank, in its report on late Sunday UK time. Russian forces continued defensive operations aimed at encircling Avdivka, but have yet to make further gains amid a likely decreasing tempo of Russian op operations in the area. So what we know is that estimates last week suggested upwards of 100 Russian vehicles had been destroyed or taken out of operation by Ukrainian defences. And the Institute for the Study of War 
has reported that Russian sources have also attempted to dial down their rhetoric on this attack. We we can guess that this attack has essentially fizzled out and Russia has run out of either resources or the willingness to take it. What started off, we believe, as a very interesting and armoured thrust, an attempted blitzkrieg using a sort of combined arms manoeuvre by sort of late last week had turned into another sort of let's throw our vehicles straight and go on these head-on frontal attacks um, using human waves again. So that kind of indicates that Russia basically lost the willingness to fight after failing to to capture Adivka in an initial blitz. Um, and what's interesting, so more from the ISW, the Institute of Study of War, from over the weekend, they remarked that US and Ukrainian officials had anticipated the Russian operation around Avdivka and actually expressed confidence in Ukrainian defences there. So the US uh, National Security Council spokesperson, John Kirby, he reported on October the 13th that the um, new operations, the Russian offensive operations near Liman and Avdivka did not come as a surprise. He said, as I said earlier, that we are confident that Ukrainian forces are able to repel these attacks. And then also, so Ukraine's main military intelligence directorate, the GUR, so that Ukrainian military intelligence, one of their spokesmen, uh, Andrei Yusov, he also reported that Ukrainian forces knew about and had prepared for the Russian attack near Avdivka because Russia had basically amassed a certain amount of forces around the area. And I'll stop there for Avdivka, so we covered that quite extensively, and let's go to what happened last night in terms of aerial strikes and say Russia launched five missiles and 12 kamikaze drones at Ukraine in an overnight attack. And that's according to Ukraine's air force. So the air force said missiles of which it shot down two targeted Northern and Eastern regions while the drones of which 11 were shot down. The attacks seem to have happened around Western Ukraine. The governor of the Eastern region, Potolva, uh, Philip Prunin, said the region had been attacked by drones and missiles and that three civilians had been hospitalised as a result of the attack. Fortunately, no civilians or critical infrastructure were hit. However, missile fragments damaged several private homes, Philip Pronin wrote on his Telegram uh, account. That's interesting for various reasons, but it does point towards that picture we've been painting of late, that Russia is ramping up its attacks on Ukrainian critical infrastructure, trying to really cause damage to the electricity, uh, the power grids, um, and the heating systems as winter draws closer. And essentially, as Russia's attempt to freeze Ukraine into submission again, that's why Ukraine, when it goes to these sort of NATO meetings, meeting with Western officials and other Western governments have been asking for air defence and ammunition because they want to continue bolstering their air defences to protect against these long-range attacks over the winter. Then some interesting news and revelations on kidnapped Ukrainian children who had been taken to Russia. So three Ukrainian children who had been taken to Russia are to to be released to Qatari diplomats in Moscow this week, according to a Qatari official. The release is part of a mechanism Qatar has set up with the goal of returning many more children from Russia to Ukraine. Qatar on Friday said it facilitated the return of another Ukrainian child, aged seven, who was reunited with his grandmother and is en route to Ukraine via Estonia, according to the Qatari official. The other three children are a boy aged two, a nine-year-old boy and a girl aged 17. So Kiev has identified 20,000 children that have been taken from Ukraine to either Russia or Russian-held territory without the consent of family or guardians. 
that's one of the big points. We know Vladimir Putin, he was indicted by the International Criminal Court and given essentially the hat of a war criminal for his role in taking and children from Ukraine to Russia or Russian-held territory. And a lot of this is with the indoctrination of these children in mind. They want to root out any sense of Ukrainian in them and transform them into fully-fledged Russians under the view of Vladimir Putin's Russia, rather than just sort of innocent Russians who don't believe that this war is a justified thing. And I'll stop there. Thank you very much for talking us through all of that, Joe. James Crisp, our Europe editor, can I come to you next? There have been some extremely important elections in Poland. Can you talk us through the elections, what happened and what might happen in the future? Yeah, certainly. So basically there is the incumbent government in Poland is called the Law and Justice Party. They were looking to win their third consecutive election. Now, they did win the election, but they fell short of the support needed to form a majority. So in order to form a government, they would have to go into coalition. Now, law and justice, Poland in general, actually, have been big supporters of Ukraine. But I think they've welcomed in something like 1.5 million Ukrainian refugees since the war started. But we have a cost of living. We have rising inflation in Poland. And there are also the hardening of some attitudes towards Ukrainians. We saw it most recently with the row between Warsaw and Kiev over grain imports. Polish farmers were, were worried that uh, the domestic market was basically being flooded by cheap Ukrainian grain. And that basically led to a bit of bad blood. However, there's been some other stuff going on in the election campaign. I mean, law and justice have recently brought in some new rules where Ukrainian refugees would have to pay half of their accommodation costs. And there was a lot of talk in the run-up to Sunday's election about uh, Law and Justice's flagship policy. Uh, they were going to increase child benefits from 500 zlotys per child each month to 800 zlotys, which is about £152. Now, this was seen by critics of the government as basically a bribe, but it also kick-started a kind of Unfortunate debate, really, over whether uh, Ukrainians should continue to get child benefits. Now, law and justice didn't say they weren't they were going to restrict it. At the moment, Ukrainians do get many of the same benefits that Poles do. However, Confederation, which is basically a far right, younger party, it's, it has great support amongst the youth. It actually has bit of a track record of some unsavoury anti-Semitism, homophobic comments. It's been forced to deny it's pro-Russian. But anyway, Confederation had said in the campaign that they would prevent the benefit being paid to Ukrainians. So make of that what you will. Fortunately for those Ukrainians in Poland, Confederation did far worse than was expected. They were meant to do 10%. According to the exit polls, they've only managed 6.2%. Now, Confederation was really the only coalition party, possible coalition partner for law and justice. So it looks like law and justice are out. Who is in? Donald Tusk. Now, Donald Tusk or Tusk is a former European Council president and a former prime minister of Poland. Uh, he's very pro-EU, as you'd imagine. And a big sort of deal in this election was really 
whether or not relationships between Warsaw and Brussels would get worse or improve. But he also is no fan of Vladimir Putin. I remember being in a European Council summit back when the Russians were bombing Aleppo and the EU was struggling and ultimately failed to get uh, together the support for sanctions on Russia. And I don't think I'd seen at that point a, a politician look so disappointed and so angry as Mr. Tusk did when he stood up and he said simply, we failed. So I would expect this is good news uh, for Ukraine. I mean, let's be clear, Polish support for Ukraine has always been very, very, very strong. But, you know, I think this will shore it up. And it comes at a good time um, because today, as we spoke the last time I was on about Slovakia's election, we have kind of a flip side going on there. Slovakia, like Poland, facing high inflation, the cost of living. There, a, um, a very pro-Russian populist leader, Robert Fico, won the election and is going to sign the coalition agreement to form a new government with two other parties today. And he won the election on a pledge not to send one more round of military aid to Ukraine and criticizing Western sanctions against Russia. So sort of two sides of the same coin there. In one in one sort of part of Europe, we have a buttressing of support for Ukraine. And in another smaller country, uh, we have a, a bit of a, a weakening of it. Uh, but I, I think it's fair to say that, you know, while countries like Hungary, which have definitely been a kind of soft underbelly, will be happy to have Slovakia on board as an ally, they will certainly be bemoaning the loss of Poland which on everything apart from Ukraine in, in European politics, stuff like migration, uh, stuff like battles with Brussels uh, over various policies, Poland and Hungary have been hand in glove. Well, that I can't see that continuing to anywhere near the same extent after this election. Thank you very much, James. Just quickly, for those of us not hugely familiar with the Polish electoral system and so on, what happens now? How long do we imagine these talks, these coalition talks may take place? What should people be looking for? Well, I mean, you know, the convention is that law and justice, as the biggest party, will be handed the first chance to form a government. So they will go through the motions on that. But apart from Confederation, and even Confederation said they didn't want to go into coalition before the election uh, with, with law and justice. But the other parties um, are considerably, they've already made clear they'll work together. So, you know, Tusk leads a party called Civic Platform. There are two smaller pro-EU parties who did better than expected. And they've said before the elections, they will work together. So it's not going to be easy. You know, you're going to have to basically get three coalition, well, three parties into a coalition. And some of those parties are themselves coalitions of other parties. But, you know, I think they'll do it. And I think they'll do it because they're just desperate to get uh, law and justice out of government after eight years where you've had crackdowns on abortion rights, on LGBT rights, on media freedom. And of course, uh, you know, these strained relationships uh, with Europe in a country where, you know, they still remain very pro-EU membership. So look, Tuesday is the day when the count will be finalised. After that, the president will probably invite law and justice to try and form a government. You see what happens after that. And then he will invite Tusk 
to try and form a government. I mean, I, I would assume that we would see a uh, a coalition agreement some point after that. But how long will that take? I don't know. End of the year, maybe? Gosh, well, thank you very much, James Crisp, our Europe editor, for joining us there. Thank you, James. I know you have to run off and do some other reporting, so hugely appreciative of your time today. Let's go to James Kilner. Uh, James, there's, there's quite a few different diplomatic and political updates. Where would you like to start? Hi, David. So uh, I think Putin's visit to Central Asia, Putin, Putin's become really active once again on the international diplomatic scene and he's starting to travel for the first time this year so i think that's that, that for me is one of the key headlines he was in uh, bishkek the capital of kyrgyzstan last week for a two-day trip that was his first trip literally his first trip outside russia this year and he's due in china this week later this week both trips are around building support for the kremlin support for russia in the context of of his war in ukraine obviously in bishkek he was there for a two-day meeting of uh, the cis uh, head of states of the CIS, which is a sort of a loose former Soviet group of countries. And so the important thing with Kyrgyzstan, it's not a member of the ICC. It hasn't ratified the Treaty of Rome. So as Joe was talking about earlier, Putin is suffering from an, uh, is under an arrest warrant from the, uh, fr- from the treaty, uh, fr- from the ICC. Uh, and Kyrgyzstan is not, uh, hasn't ratified this, the ICC Treaty of Rome. So it was under no obligations to to arrest Putin. When he was there, there was various sort of deal makings, business pledges, promises to improve bilateral relations, this sort of thing, you know, the normal sort of thing you can expect. Um, but also this was definitely, looking at Putin's body language and what he said, it was definitely Putin on a, on a huge charm offensive in Central Asia. The Central Asia states, the five Central Asian states, have become something of a diplomatic battleground between the West and Russia. Russia, historically huge ties to the region. Uh, they're obviously former Soviet states. Russian is widely spoken. Uh, uh, Russian business is normal, is extensive. There's huge educational links, cultural links, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But crucially, the Central Asian countries were very sceptical of the Kremlin's uh, invasion of, of Ukraine last year and have made how to put this, how to sort of made sort of inroads into sort of reaching out to the West, which has really taken a back seat in Central Asia since the 2014 drawdown of uh, NATO military forces from uh, Afghanistan, which which they, they withdrew very much through Uzbekistan and Russia at the time. Since then, they've, they've, they've sort of lost a lot of interest in Central Asia. But um, Joe Biden even hosted for the first time, I think, uh, all five um, Central Asian leaders in in New York when, when or in Washington uh, when they're over in New York for the uh, UN um, UN meetings last uh, in September, and the German Chancellor has also hosted them recently. So it's it's become a very important diplomatic battleground. And Putin was on on his best behaviour. He sometimes mocks the Central Asian states and, and tries to belittle them, but not on this occasion. He's full of smiles and warm gestures. He even laid a wreath in Bishkek at a memorial to victims of of czarist repression. So that's obviously Moscow. The Kremlin doesn't do apologies, but it, this was as close as you can get. And then today, uh, the Kremlin's issued a uh, the transcript of an interview that Putin's given to Chinese media ahead of his uh, visit this week. China, as, as listeners to the podcast will know, is Russia's key ally. And this is a very important trip for Putin. He The, the interview was, 
there was not, not, not a huge amount of substance in terms of news in it. He was just going over the old tropes about uh, his complaints about NATO and expansion of NATO and how the West have, have you know, duped um, post-Soviet Russia, that sort of thing. But this was a very long interview. It was full of warm worms towards China about their Belt and Road Initiative um, and about relations. So clearly, this is Putin energised after all his problems around mutinies and Wagner and setbacks earlier in the year. He's energised. He's trying to get out there. He's trying to win, win over friends. Thank you very much uh, for talking us through that, James. Can we go to Ukraine? You've written up an interesting article for The Telegraph, just trying to get it up now, about Alexei Arostovich, former Zelensky advisor, controversial in Ukraine, we have to say, but he had some interesting lines. Can you talk, talk to us about what about, about some of the things he's been saying? Sure. So he's sort of setting himself up, I guess, some sort of opposition to Zelensky and Zelensky's party. He was really... He has a, as you know, he has quite a large following. He used to be a very high profile advisor to uh, Zelensky and fell out of favour in January when he criticised Ukrainian missile air defence systems over Dnipro. He said that, the context is that, a, that an apartment block in Dnipro was hit by a Russian missile and I can't remember exactly, but several dozen people were killed. It was carnage. It was awful. I was reporting that day for the Telegraph and, and I remember it clearly. And he said at the time, or a day or two later, that the missile strike was because of the Ukrainian air defense system had hit a Russian missile and diverted it from whatever target it was aimed at into the into the uh, apartment block. So it was like an accidental calamitous strike sort of thing. That he lost huge favor around this. He, he came out because you know the Russians obviously jumped on this and used it for their propaganda. He lost huge favor around this. He fell out of Zelensky, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, because he broken free and wasn't towing the line. And since then, he sort of uh, increasingly and increasingly vocally uh, set himself up as some sort of oppositionist to Zelensky. And he was he's been saying that in in a, in, a, in, a, in a statement he released on Twitter and, and Telegram over the weekend that Zelensky's, the Ukrainian counteroffensive has been utterly wasted. Uh, he, he said he was in favour of the counteroffensive, but the way that it was, the strategy that Zelensky and his commanders have used has failed the Ukrainian people and the Ukrainian army. They've lost a lot of lives. They've expended a lot of goodwill from their NATO allies. They've lost a lot of equipment, this sort of thing, and they've achieved very little. And he was saying that this was basically down to strategic blunders by Zelensky and co., including splitting our forces and getting diverted, as Joe was saying, dragged into fighting around Bakhmut in the eastern Donetsk region. Uh, he said if, if the Ukrainians had, had tried their best to ignore this, these battles around Bakhmut and concentrated its forces on the southern front line, they could have broken through and may, may have reached Melitopol, which we, we know is, was a primary target. So he, he was very, very scathing of Zelensky. And now, now there's more context here. The US, um, Ukraine is supposed to be holding a, an election next year, a presidential election. I don't think they've actually committed to it yet because of the war. But the US is pushing for them to hold this election and also to, to, to clamp down on corruption. These are two key issues for, for the US, democracy and corruption. That's the... Uh, you know, that, those are their key pillars. And uh, Arestovich was sort of saying, we need a new government. He came out and said this. As far as I'm aware, this is a fairly sort of controversial thing to be saying in Ukraine at the moment, although frustration is building. He said, we need a new government. Zelensky and co, they, 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 they've gone past their sell-by date. 
They've been running this uh, war for 20 months and it's not going well and they need to be refreshed. He also accused them of being corrupt without expanding on, on what he meant by this. He, used, he accused them of being corrupt several times. So he's clearly got a huge axe to grind and, and he may also represent an increasingly, I, I, I don't know the figure, so I don't want to overstate it, but he, he may represent more and more people's views in Ukraine. It also comes, and this is important, at the same time that he has been investigated by Ukrainian police into comments that he allegedly made which promoted violence against women on, on a blog or, or in one of his lectures. He lectures at a university on, on psychology issues. He has denied the charges, uh, the, the allegations rather, but there, there's more context here. So there's, there's very bad blood. And the consensus, the sort of uniform approach that Ukraine has given out for so long is fractured. I think that's really important for people to keep in mind. Thank you very much, James. I'll come back to Joe later in case, Joe, you want to add anything on the Polish elections as our Brussels correspondent. James, just staying with you for one more point. Obviously, after the attack of Hamas on Israel and Israel's response over the past 10 or so days, we, we've gone over how this how this new war in the Middle East will impact the war in Ukraine, impact on Ukraine and Russia. We've, we've heard from quite a few people on this, but would you like to add some of your thoughts there as well? So I think it's really important. And I mean, forgive me, I haven't, I haven't listened to... I listened to most of the podcasts last week, but not all of them. So forgive me if I'm going slightly old ground, but I think it's really important... To, for, for leaders to remember uh, that this that the impending the apparently impending war in the Middle East in Gaza is not an expansion of the war in Ukraine. It has its own very very local issues. There were some allegations last weekend when the extent of the atrocities, the, the terrorist atrocities, became clear that somehow Moscow was pushing Hamas into into war. People pointed to the fact that Hamas had uh, visited Moscow earlier in the year. Some of the tactics involved, including uh, dropping grenades from drones, etc., were sort of evidence of of Moscow's sort of pushing Hamas into this war. I don't think that's true at all. Israeli government delegations have also visited Moscow this year. The fact that they've used, uh, that Hamas used uh, drones to drop grenades on um, Israeli Machine gun nests is, is, is no evidence whatsoever of, of, of Moscow's involvement. It, it's also, I mean, so the Russian commentators in the media have been saying how the war may, the potential war in the Middle East may benefit Moscow because it diverts US and, and NATO attention from Ukraine. And certainly you can see that, certainly with, with media coverage, has really dropped off a, a, on, on over Ukraine and Russia compared to the amount of effort it's going to report to in Israel and, and Gaza right now. And, and uh, the, the Russian commentators in the Russian media have been saying, you know, this is a good thing because it means we can just get on with winning the war uh, against Ukraine uh, with less scrutiny from, from Western, annoying Western journalists and from uh, Western governments who are, who are trying to supply uh, Ukraine with weapons, etc. I'm I'm not sure that that's the case. There are still going to be journalists like myself and Joe and others who are scrutinising what what the Kremlin is up to and what's going on on the battlefield. And I'm not sure that um, uh, weapons supplies to to Ukraine will particularly drop off. Sure, the US will be will be slightly their attention will be slightly diverted. But um, I think it was at the end of last week, Denmark said that they're going to send more F-16 uh, fighter jets 
to Kiev. The program to train um, Ukrainian pilots on, on F-16s has been sped up, blah, 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 blah. These are the, these issues are set in motion. So, so, so I'm not sure that that argument is going to quite wash. And also, really importantly, Moscow's interference in Syria needs to be considered when trying to weigh out whether a new war in the Middle East will, would benefit Russia or not. The, I mean, the Kremlin very much sees its intervention in Syria, where it backed up uh, the Syrian regime, as a huge success. It created a you know, huge influence in the region, etc. They've still got their sort of mercenary forces there, and they've got uh, access to a naval base on the Syrian coast. What they don't want is a huge war, which is going to upset that. They want sort of low-level low, low level conflict, sort of suits them well. But a huge war, dragging neighbours, etc., I think would be a disaster for the Kremlin and wouldn't suit their aims at all. Thank you very much for all of that, James. It's great to have you back on. Um, before we go to our final thoughts, Joe Barnes, would you like to add anything uh, to the Polish elections or anything to some stuff we've heard so far? No, so James did a fantastic job of covering off sort of what's gone on the ground in Poland. But I just want to say in, in Brussels, there's sort of a mild sense of celebration, maybe a bit too soon that Donald Tusk, a, a love child of the EU project to some sort of Eurosceptic voices, they'd love to have him in charge. But what I would say just for the wider Ukrainian context of it, a lot of the anti-Ukrainian rhetoric, rhetoric around sort of grain shipments and weapon shipments to and from Ukraine was used by the Conservative Law and Justice Party as a way to boost their sort of nationalist voter base in Poland. So I'd, I'd soon see stuff like that dropping off. And I, I really don't think there's any sort of cause of concern for the Ukrainians uh, on this particular front. And I'll stop there. Thank you very much, Joe. Well, we'll come back to you for your very final thoughts. James Kilner, would you like to go first? David, I think if, if, if you're looking at Russia and, and, and Ukraine this week, it has to be Putin in China and, and Beijing. And, and, and again, watching the body language and, and seeing what what they, this access, seeing it develop and, and what deals they come up with. China actually criticised the Kremlin uh, about 10 days ago when there was a missile strike on, um, on that funeral party in, in, in eastern Ukraine. Uh, 50 odd people were killed, etc. Terrible, terrible day. China actually vocally criticised the Kremlin for that, which was very unusual. So it, it, it's not a uh, an entirely smooth relationship, and and it's obviously one sided. Like Russia has become a much more needy partner, and it's not even clear if China has alleged to have given some sort of non lethal aid to Russia some drones or body armor, that sort of thing. But it's not even clear if, if weapons are coming from China to Russia. So, 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 so that's, my, that's the big story of the week from my end. Thank you very much, James. Joe Barnes to finish us off today. Uh, yeah, I think one to watch. It's, it's a fairly new story and largely developing. So last week we reported that President Zelensky wanted to visit Israel in a show of solidarity. He's urged the West to stick by Israel and show Israel it's not alone. But what we're hearing from Hebrew language media in Israel is that request to visit has been turned down by Benjamin Netanyahu, the Israeli prime minister. And the quote is that it is not the right time. So it's, it's interesting to see how on the diplomatic front there, Zelensky has been told to potentially stay away from Israel. And I'll be looking to stand that up because I think that's a fantastic 
really interesting story at a time when we've had sort of James Cleverly has been there, the British Foreign Secretary, Anthony Blinken, the Secretary of State for the US, uh, Ursula von der Leyen, the European Commission's President, and Roberta Metsola, the European Parliament's President, visited last week. So it's not like they are rejecting foreign visitors, but it's just interesting, and we have to dig deeper uh, to find out what is the exact reason for Zelensky, who is a he's a Jewish politician, has been rejected a diplomatic visit to Israel amid sort of the ongoing escalating conflict there between Israel and Hamas in Gaza. So it'd be interesting to watch out for that. And I'll stop there. Thank you, Joe, James Crisp and James Kilner. The other week, I spoke to Damien Splitters, Deputy Director of Operations at Conflict Armament Research, CAR working Ukraine, mapping and understanding the supply of foreign components in Russia's drone and cruise missile programs. It was a fascinating interview with somebody who's been on the ground many times and spends his days out in Ukraine looking in detail at Russia's weapon systems. Here's our conversation. Well, Damien, thank you so much for your time today. Could you just start by introducing yourself and tell us a little bit about what you've been doing over the past 19, 20 months? Thank you so much for the invitation, David. So my name is Damien Spleters. I'm the Deputy Director of Operations at an organization called Conflict Armament Research. And what we do is we investigate the diversion of commodities in, in conflict areas around the world. Specifically for Ukraine, we have sent teams there roughly every two months since the beginning of the invasion in February to open up systems, so weapon systems recovered by Ukrainian forces. We will open up those systems used by Russia and we will do what's called documentation of every single component that we find there so that we can try to understand how Russia got them in the first place, map out their acquisition channels so that the risk of diversion in the future can uh, can be mitigated. When you mention weapon systems, what are we talking about exactly here? We're talking big things like cruise missiles, helicopters. We're talking small things as well, like uh, radios, and then everything in the middle, like drones. And what are you looking for when you open these things up? So the chips that are inside those systems are, are very similar to chips that you could find in your own phone or your own computer or television. And usually they bear marks that will identify the manufacturing company and also they will bear marks like lot numbers or serial numbers or, or date codes that that should facilitate uh, the tracing of those components. So that means that, you know, when, when we talk to industry and we show them what we have found, they can tell us to whom they sold the component in the first place. And, and then we can try to figure out how Russia got those components, which companies they used, which routes they used. I mean, you mentioned earlier that you're, you've been sending teams out every sort of two two or so months to Ukraine to work there. Where have you been? What have you seen? Can you talk us through maybe some of your own trips and try, try to sort of give us a bird's eye view uh, of what, you, what you're up there, what, what you're doing there? So I've been working in Ukraine since 2017. And before the current invasion of February 2022, we were working mainly in the east of the country and looking at the weapons that were used by the groups that were supported by Russia at the time. Since February of 2022, we go to Kiev mainly because that's where all these systems are being centralized for, for my teams to look at. And what do you do when you found the evidence? And what, what are the processes after you've, you've identified the component parts of, of, a, of chips or whatever that you find in some of these weapon systems? What happens then? 
So once we have taken very detailed pictures of, of those very tiny components and all their marks, we will do what's called a we will the, the, what's called the, the tracing process will kicking. So it means that we will write what we call a trace request that includes all the information we have on the weapon system that those chips were found in, all the markings we've seen, and then we will send that to the manufacturers and we'll ask them to help us understand the routes that this component has taken. So we're very aware that, you know, in the semiconductor industry, there, there's there's a big lack of visibility over their own supply chain or control over where the components are going. But we know that those companies can give us at least one or two layers down the chain in terms of distribution. So far, we have identified more than 150 non-Russian companies responsible for the production of these components. So there's a lot of There's a lot of potential for triangulation there. Even if they can only give us partial information with responses from dozens of different manufacturers, we can start triangulating entities that that are more of interest to us. And then we will look at their trade patterns for after February of 2022. And we will see how they continue to acquire Western components through third country companies. And over the course of the full-scale invasion, what kind of patterns uh, are you seeing thrown up? As you said, you've been going every two months, you're looking at quite a few of these systems, getting a lot of evidence. Yeah, what what shifting patterns do you see in how the Russians are requiring uh, the chips needed for these systems? So we see that most of the components we have documented were produced before the invasion. So there was was a, a concerted effort to procure components and stockpile them before the invasion in provision of trade control, export control, and sanctions to try to to have a buffer there. And and so much so that we only started seeing components made after February 2022 this year in May. So, you know, for certain type of components, Russia is in need now to replenish their stocks. But what we've seen in general is that the historical distributors for the Russian market that we have identified with our industry partners are still getting the components now through third third country entities, mainly based in Asia, Hong Kong and China, for example. And just in terms of the industries involved, could you? I know you can't necessarily go into too much detail, but are there particular areas of electronics or, or anything really that you see the majority of these things being sourced from, or is it really just everywhere? Well, it's it's semiconductors uh, in general. So the semiconductor industry is a very global type of industry. When I say manufacturers, actually, the companies are not manufacturing themselves, their chips, you know, they're designing them. And then the fabrication plant will physically produce them. But, you know, we refer to them as manufacturers because these are the entities we will communicate with that will have the information about about the the sales, etc., or the export of these components. And we see that for Russian systems, about half of them will, will be based or headquartered in the United States, 20% Europe at large, including the UK, and then 20% Asia. But when we look at Iranian systems that Russia has been using since at least September of last year, we see that there's a much bigger proportion of companies based in the U.S. We have 80 to 85 percent of companies headquartered in the U.S. for components found in the Shahed. Is that a number that surprises you particularly? Were you expecting that? 
you have to caveat that by saying that we have documented more than 100 different uh, weapon systems for Russia and only three different weapon systems for Iran. So the stats will be a bit biased in that sense. But still, it's, uh, it's, it's pretty interesting. But when you look at the type of components that are needed, uh, and then if you look at the type of industry that we are looking into, it becomes less of a surprise to see that a lot of these companies are actually headquartered in the U.S., what kind of reaction do you get from the companies and, and, and the governments and so on when you go to them with this kind of evidence? How, how have you found the response? Well, for, for industry themselves, um, we, we, have, we have sort of two different type of, uh, of response. The first one is they will, they will be appalled. And usually they're all appalled by the fact that their components, which have no intended military use. So, you know, you have to remember, we're talking about components that are not meant to go into military systems here. So they will be appalled by that and they will try to help us and try to, you know, give us as, as much information as, as they can. And then other, uh, another sort of response we have is a non-response, unfortunately. So we have some industry actors that I think don't see the benefit of trying to cooperate with an organization such as us, despite the fact that we can actually provide them with very valuable information in terms of which one of their customers is actually problematic. Can we go into some detail on one of your dispatches from Ukraine? I'm just going to read out a line that jumped out to me from your most recent dispatch about uh, Iranian-manufactured UAVs. It's written, almost a year after the first use of Iranian-manufactured UAVs in Ukraine, evidence that the Russian Federation has begun producing its own domestic versions marks a significant evolution in the country's UAV capabilities that will allow it to sustain its reliance on single-use UAVs. Can you talk us through this dispatch, this investigation? Because that line, to me, seemed absolutely key. Well, so we've been looking at systems that were used against Ukraine for a year and a half now, and we've seen that last winter, winter 2022-2023, there was a, a very big reliance from Russia on, on Iranian systems, such as the Shahed, to target energy infrastructure, for example. You know, it, it is to be expected that this will be repeated for the next winter. And in that sense, they we think that Russia will want to rely again on this, this type of weapon system. They, they, they might see their external reliance on Iran for that as not sufficient and want to produce their own version of this type of weapon system to supplement, you know, their current stocks, especially in the face of trade and export control and sanctions. You know, I, th I think that the international community was expecting this to happen later than, than we've seen this. So I've, I've seen reports that, you know, Russia was expected to produce domestically their own version of the Shahed by early 2024. However, we've seen that those systems have been used already since at least July. And we've been, a, we've been fortunate enough to work with our Ukrainian partners to be able to access them, open them up and see how they were built with what type of components. Can you tell us what it feels like to be in the room with, I guess, the sort of bits and pieces of Shahid drones or missiles and so on? What, what does that feel like for you as an investigator? Well, you know, I've been doing this work for more than 10 years now and always feels like, like you're a little fly on the wall of history. Uh, it's, it's pretty interesting to be there where, where you know, things happen and to actually uh, feel like you can you know, have an impact on things um, if you do your work correctly. So... So it, it always feels a bit special, uh, I must say. When you look back over the last 20 or so months of doing this in Ukraine, are there any particular memories that stand out to you most? Well, I think I always look 
with a bit of melancholy at the years that I've spent in the east of the country, seeing some of the places I've been to, uh, you know, the mines of Soledar and, and Bakhmut, um, that, that are now completely annihilate, uh, annihilated. To see Mariupol, where I've been two or three times, completely razed and destroyed, I think that's always a bit, a, a bit uh, infuriating and, and sad. So yeah, that, that's, I have a lot of memories there. For listeners who want to learn more about what you and your organization do, where should they go? What should they read? Feel free to follow us on X or Twitter, where there's, you know, we, we publish a lot of our information there. But yeah, website and, and social media would be where uh, people can find more information about our work. Is there anything we haven't spoken about or anything that you wish I'd asked you that you'd like to say for our listeners? Well, you know, there's so much things I can talk about, but it, it becomes a bit nerdy the more you go into it. There's a lot of little details that are interesting just to me in terms of tracing back the, the you know, the chains of acquisitions. And, and it's always so exciting when we actually find like critical information that will lead to either sanctions or prosecutions and things like this. And so that's what makes it worth it, I think, when you know that you can actually make a change and have an impact on things. Well, I would say just very quickly, we, we, we like nerdy on this podcast. So if you can think of a, an example of that, I'm sure the listeners would appreciate the kind of incredibly granular. What does it feel like as, a, as an investigator? What, what are you looking for? Talk, talk us through it, please. <laughs> You're opening a Pandora box here. Is, <laughs> I don't know how much time you have, but... Um, no, no, lots of time. Okay. Just uh, so I, I might have two examples right now. So the first one is is perhaps jumping off the, the ones that you used earlier with the domestic version of the Shahed there made by Russia. It was pretty interesting for us to look into that uh, because we see that it goes beyond just cosmetic, cosmetic duplication of, of the system, where we see that, for example, the, the Shahed itself has something called a software-based, uh, a software-defined radio-based GNSS board that functions a bit like the, the, the navigation brain of the Shahed, together with something called an attitude and heading reference system inside which there is something called an inertial measurement unit that will allow the Shahed to continue on its course despite potential jamming on the route. So a, a weapon that effectively can go through, through, through jammed area, which makes it more deadly. And then there's also a flight computer in there, which, uh, you know, flight control unit that, that we also uh, look into. So that's for the Shahed, where you have a, a lot of different modules inside the, the airframe. When we opened up the Gehan 2, so the, the domestic version, we have the impression that Russia has been kind of streamlining the blueprints. So try to simplify it, uh, make it easier to produce, perhaps in larger quantities, where you see that there you, you have a, a, a satellite navigation unit that includes what's called a Cometa module that's made by one Russian company, and we find the Cometa module in, in other Russian systems like the Orlan 10, the Four Post, or now the, the Cartograph UAV. And looking at that, you understand how critical it is to try to impact the, the chain of acquisition of components. Because if you are able to make an impact on the acquisition of components that are using those satellite navigation modules, not only will you have an impact on their ability to make the Gran drone, but also other systems. And that's also something we've seen with other uh, systems that they use. So, for example, in, in the Caliber missile, they use something called the SN-99 satellite navigation module, also made by a Russian company. And we see that SN-99 in at least four different 
missile systems used by Russia. So again, an example of how you can actually impact the whole production for Russia. And then another example I have that's also very nerdy is, is just trying to decode the codes that we find on printed circuits that we see in onboard computers, for example, that we find in Russian cruise missiles, where, you know, if you're able to do that, then you can identify different Russian companies that may be responsible for the acquisition of Western components. And then you can look at, you know, how they acquired those components. So if you stay scratching the surface and looking at just, for example, the the Kha 101 uh, cruise missile made by a company called uh, Raduga in, in Russia, if you sanction only them, you basically sanction the company that's responsible for assembling different modules into a weapon system, but not the not the entity that's responsible for the acquisition and the diversion of components. So you need to look several layers deeper, not only in, in their, the onboard computer that you find in this cruise missile, but also in the layers of PCBs that are in that onboard computer, and then look at the companies responsible for the diversion of Western components that you find on those PCB. So... You see, this is just like two examples uh, that I could I could talk about this all day if you like. No, it's but, astonishing. Um, yeah. My final question really is just how did you personally get into this? How did you start starting this job? Where, where did this interest come from? I started this right after the Libyan conflicts of 2011, where for me, it was a way to be able to talk about a conflict as a journalist at the time through through the use of physical documents, weapons. So to me, weapons are physical documents that they bear marks. And in them, they, they embody a whole of, of stories. So, you know, how people get them, how they move around, how they are used, how they are misused, how they are diverted. All that allows you to talk about a certain conflicts. And in, in this day and age, finding physical documents that, that, that can still hold a little parcel of truth that if it's revealed can have an impact on how this conflict will play out is pretty rewarding. And that's that's why I continue to do this work. Just very quickly, do you have a, a sort of proudest moment for yourself and your team looking back over the past um, 19, 20 months in Ukraine? Well, just, just seeing seeing companies being sanctioned, people getting arrested, and knowing that, you know, some of the information that we've produced may have contributed to that is, is probably, you know, some of the proudest moments I have for my team. And, and we're, just, we're just hoping that the work we're doing now will serve to, to, to help alleviate the, the plight that currently is on Ukrainian people. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah, yeah no worries. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine the latest. We'll sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website, where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm London time each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it is released, do refer to the podcast apps. If you appreciated this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. 
You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. As ever, we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest was produced by Charles Gear, and the executive producers are David Knowles and Louisa Wells.